Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each assessment, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest and best practice guidance in all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark and executive at Lenosity, the industry leader in assessment management software. And today, for our first podcast of 2022, we're really pleased to welcome Stephen Sarici, whose work is well known in the world of assessment. He's a distinguished university professor in the psychometrics program and director for the Center of Educational Assessment at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Previously, he was senior psychometrician at GT Testing Service, psychometrician for uniform CPA exam, and research supervisor of testing on the Newark Board of Education. His research is primarily in educational test development and evaluation, particularly issues of validity, cross-lingual assessment, standard setting, and computer-based testing. He's on several advisory committees, has written numerous publications, and served as past president of both NERA and NCME. He's earned too many awards to list here, so let's dive into the discussion. Welcome, Steve. John, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, I mean, we're really honoured because you're one of the great people in, in psychometrics. Do you want to start off by telling us how you got into assessment at the beginning? Sure. Uh, I was a psychology major undergraduate and was really interested in industrial organizational psychology. And that was the path I was looking towards. Um, but when I started applying to graduate school in I.O., it, it proved pretty difficult for me to get in. Um, and I think one of the reasons why, ironically, is my GRE scores were, weren't as competitive as uh, as others. So I ended up uh, applying after I got a master's in counseling psychology with a concentration in employee assistance programs. And I stumbled across psychometrics. So I applied to one psychometrics program and a, a couple of IO programs. And the only program I got in was psychometrics. I, I thought I would give it a try. And I ended up going to Fordham University in psychometrics and, and loved it right away and have never looked back. And what kind of jobs have you done along the way? I, mean, I mentioned a few of them in the introduction, but uh, do you want to just walk us through a little bit some of those? Yeah, well, if you go into psychometrics, there's generally two paths you can you can follow. One is uh, psychological testing, and the other is educational testing. And while I was still working on my graduate degree, I got a, a full-time job at the Board of Education in Newark, New Jersey. So it really steered me toward educational testing. Uh, I was there for a year, and then I had the opportunity for a fellowship at Educational Testing Service. I went there and, and started um, doing some research at ETS for the summer. And um, subsequently, I ended up at the CPA exam in New York City, which was the licensure exam for accountants in the United States. I was there for a couple of years, um, and then I went to the GED Testing Service, which is a, a high school graduation diploma exam at the national level for adults. And that was based in Washington, D.C. I was there for three years. And um, while working there, I, I had stayed in touch with Ron Hamilton, who was just a luminary in the, in the field of psychometrics. And we had done some work together while I was at the CPA exam. And when the job opened up at the University of Massachusetts, he convinced me to apply. I did. Thought I'd be there uh, for a few years, see how I liked academics. And uh, before I knew it, it was 25 years had passed. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been in UMass ever since. And tell me a little bit about Ron Hamilton and what it's like working with him. Well, Ron's a terrific guy. Many of us in, in the educational measurement field could, could point to him as, as a, a teacher and mentor. So although I'd never formally been one of his students, once you start working with Ron, it's, it's like you're in his family. And he 
He cares about the research. He's just such a great problem solver. I uh, solved so many problems in psychometrics from from standard setting to item response modeling and so forth. So uh, we hit it off very well. He's He's been a mentor to me and uh, someone who's not just helped me understanding some of the complexities of psychometrics, but actually had a how to navigate a career, and he's been very supportive throughout. Yeah, I've met him uh, and heard him speak a few times, and he's a very, very impressive person. Absolutely, yeah. One other thing to add about Ron is Ron is the one who introduced me to the International Test Commission because he, in the in the 90s, was doing work with the International Test Commission on developing guidelines for translating and adapting tests. And that was just such a wonderful introduction because it's just such a great organization, as you know, uh, for connecting people interested in assessment all over the world. So tell our audience a little bit about the ITC. Yeah, ITC, International Test Commission. Um, I am president-elect of, of that organization. And it uh, is an organization of or, um, associations who are involved in testing, like um, you know the European Psychological Associations, American Psychological Associations, um, some test publishers, as well as individuals. And we have a biennial conference every two years at some some place around the world. In 2022, it's going to be in Cape Town, South Africa. In 2024, it's going to be in Grenada. And it's just a terrific place to keep up on not just developments in educational and psychological testing, but, but what the differences are across the globe. So it's just a, a really great organization to um, network and, and understand what's happening in different countries around the world. And the ITC also produced some good guidelines. Absolutely. And and if you visit the ITC's website, they're all free to download. There's guidelines on uh, testing linguistically and culturally diverse uh, test takers. There's guidelines on um, uh, translation as, and adaptation, as I mentioned, guidelines for quality control and testing. And we are working with the Association of Test Publishers to put out a joint effort between the International Test Commission and ATP on uh, technology-based assessment guidelines. Yeah, no, I'm enjoying working on that with you. And I've also, the ITC also does some great security guidelines, which I'd recommend to people. I think you're also involved with the NCME as, as, as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what, what they do? Yeah, that's correct. The National Council on Measurement and Education is a organization of professionals working in, in educational testing. You know, it's unfortunate the word national is in there because there is about 15% of the membership is uh, international. And NCME is one of the three groups that develops the standards for educational and psychological testing, along with the American Psychological Association and, and American Educational Research Association. And NCME has been working with those groups for about 70 years now. I think we're up to the, the sixth edition of the standards that's out. Um, those standards are also available for free for public download, available in both English and Spanish. And NCME has, uh, I would say, about a third are academics, about a third are, are testing practitioners, and a third are researchers working in, in different um, research organizations around the world. And again, another really great uh, organization, we put out two journals, Educational Measurement Issues and Practice, and the Journal of Educational Measurement. So just really good places for people to go to see what's the most cutting-edge research in educational testing as well as practices and discussions of policy issues in educational testing and so forth. And how would you, if somebody is interested in getting involved in one or both, how would you compare NCME to ITC? Well, first of all, I'd recommend joining both. They're, they're both very affordable. NCME.org, you can join. Uh, it's $95 a year for an individual. ITC is $45 a year for an individual. And with the ITC membership, you also get a, a journal, which is the International Journal of Testing. So I'd recommend both. The, the difference between the two is that ITC 
is a bit broader with respect to the application areas because you will get people working in, in um, psychological assessment, including personality assessment, a lot of I.O. and so forth, and as well as, as a, a clearly explicit international focus. So if you go to an ITC conference, you're going to meet people from 20 different countries. And say me, you, you will meet people from different countries too, but it's a bit harder. I would say the majority of, of the people who attend are from the United States and, and Europe. But uh, NCME would have better representation of, of academics and, and people working in educational testing. So there's a bit more activity with respect to um, representation of research across different organizations. Okay, that's interesting. And, I, and I'd certainly encourage anybody listening to think about uh, joining one or, one or both organizations. Let's move on to some of the research that you've done. And I think a lot of that's been around validity. Could you perhaps uh, describe maybe either the research or, or, or what we mean by validity? And Sure. It's hard to measure something about a person that's not physical, right? If, if we want to know how much you weigh or how tall you are, that's pretty straightforward. But to get an accurate assessment of your mathematical knowledge or your how well you can read or your likely performance on the job is a lot harder. So the standards for educational and psychological testing have kind of um, solidified and, and brought together a lot of the research about what are the, the qualities of tests that would give us some confidence that the, the way test scores are being used are justified. So we kind of describe validity as the degree to which the evidence that we have and the theory that, that went into developing a test support the use of a test for a particular purpose. So in kind of following how tests are used and what they're designed for, um, it's been interesting and kind of helpful to, to work with testing organizations and others to say, well, what kinds of studies could we design that would provide some evidence to make us confident that the way we're using test scores is, one, useful for the, for the purposes we're, we're, we're uh, developing the test for, and two, fair and valid for everyone taking the test. So to do that requires a pretty eclectic mix of, of quantitative um, research methods, um, empirical studies, as well as qualitative methods to really say, hey, for educational tests, do we have the content right? Is the content that appears on the test consistent with, with the goals and the purposes of the testing? And also, um, are we measuring the right cognitive processes that the test is targeting? Um, are the test scores exhibiting the relationships we would expect with other variables that, that are um, presumed to measure the same skills we're trying to measure? And are they not related to other things that, that might just uh, reflect uh, things that, that we're, we're not directly trying to measure, like digital literacy or test wiseness, those sorts of things? So, Steve, in terms of uh, educational assessment in the U.S., which is an area that a lot of people will know about. How do you see validity there? Do you think they're generally doing a good, a good job in making admissions and other exams that are more valid, or do you think there's more improvement that could be done? I think there's a great mix. So educational tests are used for quite a few different purposes, and they're kind of permeate our society right now. Um, with respect to college admissions tests, you've, in the United States you've got um, – the College Board and ACT that have been doing this for, you know, 80 years, and lots and lots of research around college admissions tests, and, and there, there are technical manuals that are very comprehensive. At the same time, people are pushing back against college admissions tests, asking for kind of an updated model. Um, 
the college admissions tests have grown out of a norm reference test perspective. And by, by norm reference, I mean we're, we're kind of comparing people to a norm or an average, so maybe lining people up on a scale and saying, okay, if we want to select uh, you know, the best people, we can start from the top and work our way down. However, you know, there is the, the, the emerging consensus that if you think about the, the knowledge and skills and, and other characteristics that people need to succeed in college, it's not so much how well they do relative to others, but um, if they have the skills and, and the competence to succeed in college. So there is um, you know, this, this burgeoning uh, movement to do more and rethink about college admissions testing, not just the test, but the entire admissions system. So in the United States, there was a recent decision by the University of California, uh, which is one of the, the largest consumers of college admissions test scores, to stop using SAT and ACT scores and, and, uh, as admissions criteria. So that's been a little bit of a shakeup. Um, also in educational testing in the United States, uh, educational tests are used for accountability. So um, the federal government has required states that receive uh, money for federal money for education to test students in specific grades and subject areas in, in reading, math, and science, for example. And those scores are being used to evaluate um, schools and school districts and in some states, teachers. And um, you know, people are starting to push back against um, that accountability, the kind of use of test scores for accountability purposes, because they're, they're seeing that tests could be used for more um, educationally relevant purposes to provide more recent information, more immediate feedback to teachers and students that they could use and act on in the classroom. So we're kind of seeing a shift from testing students in a large-scale way once a year, taking some time to report the scores when they come back six months later, um, to let's, let's think about using educational tests in a more constructive way where we can test students throughout the school year, uh, make tests more part of instruction rather than disruptive of instruction, and then provide the test results to students and teachers in a way where they can uh, see how students are doing right now and how that information could be helpful to alter instruction or to coach students in, in particular ways. And I know there's a little bit of controversy that some of these exams correlate too much with uh, parental wealth or otherwise unfair to different de demographics. Do, do you have a view on, on that at all? Well, that's a really important conversation that's going on right now, John. For, for years, people have said, well, test scores correlate with income, so therefore they're just, they're just measuring affluence. I think the, the response from the testing community has primarily been, well, educational test scores are reflecting the inequities that we see in society. So kind of don't shoot the messenger response. More recently, that response has been perceived as, as inadequate and unacceptable, in part because if you think about the, the system of education in the United States, for example, because test scores have been used for things like access to competitive high schools, access to college, and so forth, they're now seen as part of the system of systemic um, inequity, systemic oppression that, that's been operating in the United States for, for decades. So I think there's an invitation for the testing community to kind of um, accept some responsibility for this. Clearly, we're not making tests that are intentionally uh, biased or intentionally uh, being oppressive, but educational tests have had a role in the system of oppression. So there's an invitation for the testing community and researchers to kind of engage in the conversation and say, okay, how can we do more to rethink how tests are being developed? For example, 
if the history of testing has evolved out of a white dominant culture in the United States. So how can we rethink how we're defining what it is we're measuring, how uh, we can allow students to see themselves more in the assessment? So if students are from historically minoritized cultures, do the type of context that they're that they're seeing on the test reflect what their their lives and what they see on, on a day to day basis? So things like allowing students more choice in what uh, context and content is on the assessment or entering the conversation, allowing students to bring kind of what we call their funds of knowledge, the unique cultural experience and, and the knowledge that that provides to the assessment situation. Um, so one example of that is is considering multilingualism um, a an asset rather than uh, learning English as a deficit, for example. So if we, we have students taking a test that isn't necessarily measuring their proficiency in English, can we allow them to access some of their knowledge and skills that they might have learned in their, in their dominant language to the assessment situation? So things like translanguaging, switching between languages as they respond to an assessment, accessing test content in different languages, and, and those sorts of um, more flexible test administration um, conditions that, that provide um, more opportunities for students to demonstrate what they know and can do, and also honor the cultural diversity that we know exists in the test taker population. That's interesting. Thank you. And so I know another area that you've been looking at and got some views about is uh, personality assessments that uh, are used more in corporate recruiting or corporate development. That's not really an area of my expertise, John. I know that there are some, you know, just like on the educational testing side where people are demanding more accountability for, for educational tests to show that they're actually helping and doing more, more good than harm. I think on the personality side, we're, we're, we're seeing that also. People want to know that whatever the assessments are, whether you're measuring academic knowledge and skills or workplace skills or personality, that... One, you're, you, what you're measuring is, is something that's, that's universal and is not going to be um, you know, appropriate for some cultures and not others, but two, also valid for the purposes that, that they're being used for. So if we talk about you know, measuring a, a domain like mathematics skill or reading or how much science somebody knows, that's uh, you know, getting consensus about what science a fifth grader should know it's probably a bit easier than what uh, conscientiousness is or agreeableness or something like that. So I think the, the constructs uh, in personality assessment are, are harder to define and get, uh, particularly in a universal way with respect to uh, language and culture. So, I mean, perhaps we could just start about what is it, what is about that? For example, I said at the beginning of this uh, podcast that uh, about valid and reliable tests. Is that actually a fair comment that a test can be valid or is it just a question of how valid it is or how much evidence there is to generate its validity? Yeah, thanks for bringing up these important points, John. So first of all, no, validity is not an inherent property of a test. Like you can't say this test is valid or, or this test is not valid. And people talk like that all the time. But if you, you look across the, the history of validity theory and validation, People have been pointing out for 100 years you can't say a test is valid um, because it's like valid for what? We have to think about what tests are used for. It's, it's not like we develop a test that we never, we never use the scores. The scores are interpreted, and then actions are made on the basis of those test scores. 
those actions and those interpretations that need to be valid. So, for example, we could have a test that's a very valid measure of how well a student in fifth grade has um, mastered the, the math content in fifth grade. But to use that test for placement in a reading class, for example, would be totally inappropriate because that's a, that's a totally different um, subject area, right? A test being valid, we're really saying it's valid for a purpose. So a test might be good as a valid for recruiting into a particular job role or something, but it's not a valid test per se. It's only valid when it's got a context. Exactly. So validity refers to the degree to which evidence and theory support the use of a test for a particular purpose. So if there's a great body of validity evidence to support the use of a test for a particular purpose, for example, saying how well a student has mastered their, their fifth grade math content, if those scores are going to be used for something else, that would require validity evidence for, for that something else. And the other thing you bring up, John, is, is you know, well, is validity a black and white yes or no thing, or is it a matter of degree? And it's more of a matter of degree. So we actually look at the evidence and theory. So um, if there are studies that show, for example, college admissions test scores correlate about 0.5 with college grades, then that gives us some idea of, okay, well, there's some predictive utility here, right? If we square a correlation coefficient, that, that 0.5 becomes 25% of the variation in, in, in students' grades in college can be predicted from, from admissions test scores. Now, if we contrast that with something in personality assessment where the correlation is around 0.3, that, that's actually a pretty substantial drop from a 0.5 to a 0.3 where you may, might be predicting uh, on-the-job performance. If you square that, now you've got 9% of the variation in job performance. Could you explain to our audience what the correlation is and why squaring it is, is useful? In short, so correlation is one of the terms in statistics that actually has a good name because it's a co-relationship. So if we think about two variables like you know how well someone does on a test and how well they do in college, now we've got a, a, a bunch of people and we've got measures on two different variables. One, we've got their, their GPAs in college and we've got their test scores before they went to college. So looking at that co-relationship, um, if students are doing better in college, also had better test scores, then we say, oh, that, that's a positive relationship. So a correlation coefficient is actually trying to gauge the quantity and quantify that relationship. So if 100% of, of how students performed in college could be predicted from how well they did on the test, that correlation would be 1, would be 1.0. And what we find is that correlation is about 0.5. So um, that doesn't mean 50% of what we uh, see students do in college can be predicted from their test scores. We actually have to square that 0.5, and 0.5 times 0.5 is 0.25. So, so I think what you're saying is that uh, a good validity evidence is if things correlate with real-world outcomes and that a correlation of 0.5 is a much more powerful correlation than, say, a correlation of 0.3. That's right. And, and the correlation is just part of the story. So if we think about validation and standards for validation, there are five sources of validity evidence, and the correlational uh, type of evidence would just be one of those five sources. You know, with content, internal structure, things like dimensionality and invariance across cultural groups. So it'd be great if you could just run through those five. And what, if people are basically creating a test that they want to, to get validity evidence for it, what are the five areas that they should look 
Sure. So the standards for educational and psychological testing and, and many other researchers point out five sources of evidence for validity that can be used to evaluate uh, the use of a test for a particular purpose. So the first source is um, validity evidence based on test content. Now, this is critical for educational tests and, and tests in the licensure and credentialing space because we have to make sure the content that we're testing um, examinees on is appropriate for the purpose of the test. So, for example, when I was working for the CPA licensure exam, we had to make sure that the content that we're testing these uh, accounting candidates on was related to the practice of, of accountants. Um, the second source of evidence is validity evidence based on response processes. And this is really delving into the cognitive processes, the cognitive skills examinees are, are using or, or, or putting to task when they respond to test items. And are those cognitive processes consistent with what the items are supposed to be measuring? So, for example, um, are we measuring higher order mathematical reasoning or are students kind of plugging in the, the response options to a multiple choice item to try and figure out the answer? Are students guessing? Guessing is a response process. The test is not trying to measure, right? Sure. So that's an important area of, of validity investigation. The third area is internal structure, which really evaluates the dimensionality or the structure of an assessment against the hypothetical structure uh, intended to be created by the test developers. So the, the dimensionality or the factor structure of the, the theory underlying an assessment versus the factor structure that we uncover when we analyze the test response data. The fourth source of evidence for validity would be what we were talking about, um, the correlational type of evidence. So any investigations of the relationship between test scores and other variables that, that are outside of, of the test scores. And then the fifth source of evidence is validity evidence based on the consequences of testing. Now, test scores are supposed to have intended consequences, for example, making better college admissions decisions, improving um, the people we promote or select into the workforce, providing more actionable information to teachers, and so forth. So are those consequences being realized? At the same time, validity evidence based on testing consequences is looking at whether there might be some unintended negative consequences that we should watch out for, such as adverse impact, which is one of the criticisms we were talking about before, is use of the test keeping certain types of, of students, certain types of test takers out of the high-paying jobs or out of the colleges they want to get into or the high schools they want to get into. So validity evidence based on testing consequences is an important area of validity evidence to look at, particularly um, because it it speaks to the effects of tests on not just individuals, but on society as a whole. So that's really interesting. And uh, I mean, if, if there was some good practice that you'd encourage people to do that they, people don't tend to do, is there anything particular you pull, pull out? Good question, John. I think what's important is to do a comprehensive validity um, program of research. So, if we do these different studies in these five areas, and depending on the particular purpose of a test, some sorts of evidence are going to be more important than others. Um, but to kind of synthesize this evidence into what we call kind of an argument, like if, if we had to go to court and argue that the test was, was appropriate, was justified for its particular purpose, 
we would win because we'd have all this evidence. You know, say, look at the evidence with the content. We've we've done our job analysis. We've done our alignment studies. We've looked at how test scores correlate with these other variables. We've we've done some think alouds to to provide evidence on response processes. And we've also talked with, with examinees and with, with people who are using the test scores, and they seem to have the consequences that, that are intended. So I think the, the idea is just to you know, do your due diligence, be transparent about the, the strengths and weaknesses and how test scores should be appropriately used and, and guard against um, potential misuse. So the idea is to really um, put the time, the resources into conducting validation studies and have that plan at the outset. So when you start to develop a test, you can start to build validity into the test development process by doing things like having external subject matter experts look at your content, documenting their opinions, whether confirming that the test specifications are okay and so forth building in some time to gather some external data, consider you know, some of the demographics of the population and make sure they're represented in, in item writing and so forth. So I think the, the message is to spend the time on validity studies broadly defined and don't plan to do one study and expect to justify the use of the assessment for the purpose based on a, a small program of validation, but rather a large program of validation. Steve, that's really interesting to hear. Thank you. And I hope very actionable for people. We're almost out of time, but just one sort of final question. How, how do you think, see the future and things changing in testing? Yeah, it's always, it's always hard to predict uh, with, a, with a crystal ball. But one of the things uh, that I'm excited about, and, and I know you are too, John, is the use of technology in assessment. So technology is really changing you know, the way we deliver assessments and the assessment experience. We can be much more flexible for example, technology can allow uh, examinees to, to choose different types of contexts, to, to create avatars for themselves while they're, while they're taking an assessment, to access different resources, um, for example, a different translation version of an exam or an Excel spreadsheet or so forth. So technology is allowing us to do assessment in different ways. At the same time, technology is allowing us to kind of embed assessment with instruction. So now we can think of, instead of assessment being separate from instruction, while students are being instructed, particularly if they're using these online tools for instruction, all of a sudden they can be um, confronted with an assessment as part of that and in an in a undisruptive way. So I'm, I'm doing a lesson plan, and now I'm, I'm going to be asked a few things. So really exciting about what's happening with uh, the integration of instruction of assessment through the use of technology. So I think in the future, we're going to see tests being used for less of a, of a policing mechanism where, okay, let's see if a student has learned to more of a tool of instruction where we could say, okay, um, as students are being instructed, we're getting some information about how well they're doing. And that assessment is feeding back into the next steps the students should, should take in instruction and, and, and what they'll see next. That's, that feels like a really good place to end and a very exciting potential future. And Steve, I believe if uh, you also do a consulting psychometrics, if anybody is interested in getting help on validity or, or other areas. That's right. I'm, I'm still a student of psychometrics. I love to do research, but we also do both the UMass Center for Educational Assessment, our academic arm, and then my consulting arm would be Cerisi Psychometric Service, always doing lots of work in, uh, in helping people uh, validate their tests. 
Thank you, and uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And thank you very much for uh, sharing sharing a very deep insight on validity. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us today. Uh, please reach out to me directly at johnoqueshmart.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Questionmark website at questionmark.com to register for our best practice webinars. And thank you again. And please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly.